you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Abraham had no children. He had a hapless nephew. He had a beautiful wife. He had great wealth, but he had no heir. Then God decided to make Abram the father of a nation. A nation of God's choosing, a people for himself. You can flip with me. Actually, why don't we do this together? Turn turn with me. Genesis chapter 15. It's the easiest one to find in your Bible, right up there at the front. Genesis chapter 15. Look Look at verse 5. So, God came to Abram in a vision, this is before his name changed, and told him that he would have his own son to be heir of his household. Look at, look at verse 5. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. This is God talking to Abram. Number the stars. If, if you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed, Ab- Abram believed the Lord And he counted it to him as righteousness. In the very next chapter, we find Sarai and Abram struggling to be patient. Look at at chapter 16 in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Look a little further down in chapter 16 at verse 15. It says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now, this caused problems, as you might could guess. Sarah regretted this decision immediately, and she held a grudge against Hagar. But God didn't give up on Abram and Sarai, where maybe all the rest of us would have. It would have made sense, but he had a plan, and he was merciful on whom he was merciful. He had compassion on whom he had compassion. So we skip towards Genesis 21. Skip over a few chapters. Genesis 21. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. He has made promises and now changed their names. Now we're talking to Abraham and Sarah, who are the same people, Abram and Sarah. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. See the faithfulness of God? And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Skip down a couple more verses to verse 8 in chapter 21. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. 
So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. This is the scene. A man, his wife, his slave, and two sons. And the Jews took pride in being Isaac's descendant, in being the descendant of the free woman who sent away the slave and her son. They took pride in being the descendants of the legitimate and promised heir. The group of false teachers in Galatia, called Judaizers, were leaning on this heritage, this heritage of being Isaac's children's children. And from this, they were demanding the Gentile Christians observe Jewish laws in order to be in the church. The easiest way I've heard that described has been that they believed that the Gentiles first needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. That, that's, that's why we call them Judaizers. But remember, Paul has been traveling throughout his whole ministry, making disciples, and then sending those disciples out to plant churches. That's, that's what's happened in Galatia. It's, it's a, a new church that Paul had invested in, had started had planted. Galatia was fairly young, trying to sort out truth from error. That was their task. What is truth? What is error? So Paul came to their aid right here in the form of this letter, in the form of the letter of Galatians. Before we get into Galatians chapter 4, with the scene set of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children, I'd like to pray again over our time in the Word. Would you pray with me? God, we sang about how we have life because of your death. And that we're free from the power of sin because of your wounds. I'm almost certain There are people here this morning who don't feel free from their sin. Who who don't feel life. Life that could be given to them by God. I pray that as we approach this text, that you have called a sword. it would cut us deeply in such a way that we might feel that we wouldn't approach this truth coldly or distantly. That we would come to your word willing to be cut deep. We thank you for the beautiful picture that you've given to us in your word of the gospel today. Help us to see you as our most beautiful thing. Help us to see you as our great treasure. You are so good to us, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty grave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Would you read that with me? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The end of chapter 4 here in Galatians is wrapping up all of the reasoning Paul's been giving to the Galatians so far. He spent the first two chapters, you can even flip back and look, he spent the first two chapters explaining why he was a credible gospel messenger. He's building up his credibility. And then he spent chapters 3 and 4 explaining how the law and history points to the gospel. It points to the gospel he proclaimed, specifically to the one he proclaimed. So he presents here now, at the end of chapter 4, an allegory, or maybe a, a better translation of that word would be figurative, uh, an, an illustration. He presents an illustration here. These actual historical people, the people that we talked about from Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, these actual people, actual historical events in their lives illustrate something more to us within God's plan for redemption. Something more than just the event that happened. There's more there. So verse 23 is really the illustration in a nutshell. Look at, look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. That's, that's, that's your kind of thesis. That's what's happening here. So in verses 24 and 25, Paul starts with the problem. So if this is the illustration, if we see what's going on, then Paul's going to get right into it with us with the problem. And the problem is that there was a child born according to the flesh. That is to say that Ishmael was born by the work of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. The illustration is that that is the problem. They took the matter into their own hands instead of trusting God. Really, all the blame for this lays at Abraham's feet. He, he instead of leading his family disobeyed what he knew God's plan was for him. He took matters into his own hands instead of trusting God. And so Ishmael was born according to the flesh, according to the works of the flesh, what we could do on our own. They made this happen. The problem could be defined this way, as relying on yourself. That is a problem in this illustration. That is the problem in this illustration, is that here in Galatia and then with Abraham, people were willing to rely on themselves 
Paul sees that that's the same problem here with the legalistic Judaizers. They wanted to rely on themselves. Paul gives us a little bit of his signature biting humor here, right? He says, tell me, you law experts, don't you listen to the law? Like, if, if you want to be so good at the law, if you want to follow the law, don't you even listen to it? You can find that type of biting comment throughout Paul's letters. But it's a, it's a rhetorical question here. Paul wants them to see that they can't claim that at the same time they are following the law and have salvation through the law and claim Isaac as their father. They can't do both. He's saying, look, there is a child of the free and there is a child of the slave. And if you are slave to the law, you are not child of the free. If you are relying on yourself for your salvation, your works, your good deeds, your own holiness, following every letter of the Jewish law and their traditions and calendars, then you are a child of Hagar. You are stuck in slavery to the old covenant that was given on Mount Sinai. That is your belonging. So, really, as we've gone throughout Galatians, Paul has consistently torn down the pride of these Judaizers. He's come right at them where it hurts. And here again, not only is Abraham not your father because you're choosing not to have faith, Sarah's not your mother, Isaac's not your brother. You're in the lineage of Ishmael because you are slaves to the law. Everything that you hang your hat on for your importance and your worth, you're wrong about. He says that Hagar corresponds to present Jerusalem. She corresponds to the Jews who were rejecting Jesus and living according to the Mosaic law. That, that, that was their place. That's what, that's what Hagar was doing. Hagar was doing exactly what the Jews in, in the time of this letter were doing. Rejecting faith and trying to take control on their own. The Jews in 60-ish AD were in captivity to a law that had already been fulfilled. Think about the sadness of that. It, it remains true for those who try to follow the law, is that the law has been fulfilled. If they believe the law had been fulfilled, if someone could come to the Jews and say, the law has been fulfilled, you don't have to do this anymore, just by faith you can trust the one who fulfilled the law, then they could be saved and live in freedom. But because they were rejecting the message of the gospel, they stayed in captivity. In some ways, it reminds me of Juneteenth, a holiday that's gained traction, I think, in a really good way recently, that celebrates when the last slaves were set free in America. But what's so sad about that holiday is that they had been free before they knew they were free. And so they lived as slaves even while they should have been free. It was only the evil of men who kept them in chains. But here for the Jews, they had all the information needed to be free, and they kept living as if they had to be in chains. But they didn't have to be in chains. The work had been done for them. They had been set free. 
My guess is that none of us, none of us, think we are relying on ourselves for our salvation or even for our sanctification. We, we might put ourselves in the camp to say, any time that I'm growing closer to Christ, I know that's not me. I know that's God. I, I, I don't rely on myself. I, I know I rely on God. None of us would think that about ourselves, that we could be like the Judaizers. But I know that some of us are. Some of us are relying on ourselves. And let me give you a gauge. And this is a common gauge that I give. <laughs> I think already in Galatians I've given this as a gauge before. But a gauge for knowing how, how you're doing with relying on God for, for, I would say, both your salvation and your sanctification. Sanctification, if, if I'm using that word, it's, it's just saying that we're growing in Christ, that we're becoming more like Christ. The ga- a good gauge for both of those things is how is your prayer life? Prayer is, is the tool for our dependence on God, for our reliance on God. God gave us prayer to ask him for what we need. He gave us prayer to say, depend on me. How is your prayer life? Prayer is a gauge of dependency. When we, when we rely on ourselves, we don't need prayer. We don't need help. I got it. Why would I need to ask? I can do it. I'm relying on myself. And again, these aren't usually words we use all the time, but can we analyze how much we've gone to God in prayer over on the little and the big? So here's the call. Pray like crazy, church. Pray like crazy. Let's let's pray with urgency and discipline. The time is short. And if we rely on Christ, if, if our claim is that we rely on God, then let's go to him. Let's ask him for what we need. Let's beg him. Let's be persistent. Let's not take no for an answer until God makes us take no for an answer, like the persistent widow going to the judge. Let's persevere in our prayers. Prayer is evidence of having relied on God for salvation. If we have relied on God for salvation, then prayer is evidence of that. Prayer prayer isn't the salvation, but Prayer is evidence of that. And it is the path of reliance on God once saved. It's a good gauge for us, Christians. How how much time are you devoting to prayer in your life? Hagar represents the problem of relying on self. She was a slave, and her children are slaves. One last thought before we move on. It's... It's sad to consider that those who rely on themselves for their salvation and sanctification are working so hard in the wrong direction. I think we need to bring it up in here a good bit because of where we are. But cultural Christianity looks like this. It looks like the hard work of relying on yourself for everything, for your salvation and your sanctification the more we can look like we're doing good, the greater perception of our goodness by our works, the better. And a lot of this has to do with mindset, right? It's not saying do less good things. (laughs) I'm not saying go do a lot of bad things so you can prove this. But what is your attitude? What is your motivation? What is your heart in the things that you do? Is it serving your great treasure? 
Is it your life in devotion to sweet Jesus? Or is it doing the right things to be able to have the right things done? It is so discouraging and sad for those who rely on themselves in their good works, who call themselves Christians, but trust their selves, their work for their salvation. I think so many of them are so close. They've got the name of Jesus. They've got the people of Jesus nearby, but their reliance on self is separating them from God. Their legalism is building a wall where Christ wants to be in fellowship. Verses 26 and 27 point us back to the promise. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Even though Sarah's name isn't mentioned here, Paul is clearly referencing her. That, that's, that's who he's getting at. Sarah is right here. Sarah was the free woman who bore a child. Sarah was the barren one. And so here's the promise. The promise is that our salvation would be earned for us. That our righteousness would be earned for us. That by faith, we could have the type of righteousness, the only righteousness that could be seen as fully righteous before the Father, before the judge. Sarah contrived a plan to earn a son for her husband. Abraham, take Hagar. She contrived a plan to earn a son for her husband, and that contrived plan... Could not, that contrived, good morning, that contrived plan could not satisfy the need. The the contrived plan for a son could not satisfy the need for an heir for Abraham. It could not satisfy the need of a promised son from Sarah. That's what God had promised. But Genesis 21.1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Do you see what Sarah earned in any of this? None of it. (laughs) She didn't earn any of this. It's only by the goodness of God. God was using her inability to have children to paint a picture of how he provides salvation. Because she couldn't, God had to. Because you can't save yourself, so God does. He did the work through Christ. Sarah could not have a child on her own, and we could not have a restored relationship with Jesus on our own. So the promise here demands that we rely on God. Where Hagar was the illustration of relying on ourselves, Sarah is the illustration of God's providence, of relying on God. Sarah had no choice but to rely on God, and then she had the son born according to the promise. She was the barren one, the desolate one, 
And she would be the mother of children as numerous as the stars. Rejoice. Rejoice, Sarah. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For your children will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Because God was here now, not just giving her Isaac, but giving her a spiritual motherhood that would last for eternity. That, that, that now it's not just the Jews who claim Isaac as their father who came from Sarah, but now it is all Christians for all time who claim the lineage of freedom through faith in Christ. It is the faith that we call, bring our lineage through Because of God's promise, she wasn't only able to claim Isaac, but she was also able to claim all those who rely on God, who trust in God for their salvation. Even now, because of Christ, even now, this song from Isaiah 54, that's here in Galatians 4.27, this is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And, And this quotation, this rejoice and break forth and The children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This this promise still rings true. God has given us a family according to his promise. He has given us reason to sing and rejoice. I mean, really, it's another call, another example, another illustration of intergenerational ministry. In In the church, there should be no one without a family. In the church, everyone should be with a family because God has adopted us in. And that's not just a platitude. That's not just something we say to sound nice. It's not just a cold, unfilling, nice thing to say. God has given us each other for our encouragement and our intimacy. That we might call each other brothers and sisters sons and daughters. Where Hagar is the mother of the slave, Sarah is the mother of the free. Where Ishmael was born according to flesh, Isaac was born according to promise. Where the law holds the current Jerusalem captive, the promise sets the Jerusalem above free. Church, it's it's encouraging as you read this to consider that here in this text, in Galatians 4, that the Jerusalem above is our home. The Jerusalem above is our home. Right now, we're ambassadors for Christ in this weary land. It is so easy to be weary here. But we are ambassadors with purpose and meaning Someday, we will be in our true home. And notice, that that home isn't waiting. That home is already Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem above now. The already and not yet, right? That is coming. Soon, we will be there. Hebrews 13, 14 talks about it this way. For here we have no lasting city. This is one of those verses that, I think usually when I read, I just close my eyes after it for a second. What hope in this verse? For we have, for here we have no lasting city. 
but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the Jerusalem above. And this doesn't give us a mindset of escape, right? This isn't like, I just can forget all of my problems. I'm going to fly away someday. It's not a mindset of escape. It gives us a mindset for holding fast, for persevering, for enduring. This is this is, we have a home that we are looking forward to so we can endure the suffering today. We can weather the storms today because our home is coming. We seek that city. We can stand firm in this life through whatever comes because we have a Jerusalem above waiting for us, a place that the Father is preparing for you. That's Paul's encouragement here to the Galatians. He's charging them with standing firm. Look at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Notice here in this text, he's calling the church brothers. He sees them as Christians. He's not saying that they've embraced this false doctrine. He's saying, look, you guys are falling prey to it but that they're believers. He's calling them brothers. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. It's a lot of words to say, just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so it is now. Verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? What a good question. What a good Paul sets a good example for us on what questions to ask. But what do the scriptures say? This is a great question anytime for us. But what do the scriptures say? Talk about relying on God. That's a great question for reliance on God. But what do the scriptures say? Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul brings the illustration of Hagar and Sarah down to the practical level for the church. He says, look, you are a part of this illustration. You are intermingled in this allegory. That you are the Isaac here. Look, brothers, you like Isaac are going to face persecution. You are Isaac in this allegory. And like there was for Isaac, there will be for you. There will be persecution. The church has a long history of persecution. You can't talk about the history of the church without talking about persecution. Wherever the gospel goes, persecution follows. A recent Pew report said that still today, Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. But look back at our history and some of our most devastating persecution has come from those claiming to be the church. 
easy for us to point the finger and think all the bad heathens out there persecuting Christians. But how often has it been those who claim Christ persecuting Christians? Those who rely on themselves will always move to persecute those who rely on God. Those who rely on themselves will always persecute those who rely on God. The proximity of those who claim the church make them the most difficult. And I've seen recently some comparisons of Christians who have been physically injured or killed throughout history or currently as persecution and then saying like, look, Christians in America, you're not persecuted. Like, get it right. Persecution looks like these terrible things that happen. And true, that is persecution. And it's terrible that that in some countries there are Christians being burned alive. There are whole households being burned together, that they're being massacred because of their faith in Christ. That is true. That's way worse. There's people who's having their homes taken away. All that's way worse. But I'm not sure why there can't be different types of persecution. (laughs) Paul's making it clear that the church in Galatia is being persecuted here, and we don't have any indication that those who are persecuting them are doing these terrible, unimaginable things. The persecution here is that they're bringing a false gospel into the church, that they're persecuting what is tr- they're persecuting them for holding fast to what is true. Persecution doesn't have to be extreme to be persecution. It's a pretty broad word. Now, I'll say we shouldn't be quick to play victim when we're persecuted. We should stand firm with the courage of one who has a home waiting. We should endure that way. But in this text, the persecution was this type of persecution. It was standing up against false gospels. Verse 29 calls false teaching persecution. These Galatians were being bullied to reject their belief. They were being bullied to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ a litmus test of works. And this will always happen because those born according to the flesh, those who enslave themselves to the law, will always resent the free. There will be persecution. And those who are enslaved will always resent the free. As children of the promise like Isaac, we will face persecution. And that's when we will need to remember our mission the most. It's easy when persecution comes to start asking the question, is this worth it? Am I right? Right? It'd be a lot easier just to be wrong sometimes. It'd be a lot easier just to go along with the crowd and say, "That, that does sound fine. That does sound nice. I would rather choose what is easy. Now, we state our mission as a church this way, to be a Christ centered community driven by the joy of the gospel, to make disciples who make disciples. That's really the mission of every believer, to be a part of a Christ-centered community, to be filled with the joy of the gospel, to be filled with all the fullness of God, and to make disciples. That's how we love God and love others. It's practically what, how we do that. In the midst of persecution, we will need a community that loves Jesus, that keeps the gospel front and center, and keeps making disciples.
one of the best things we can do in the midst of a false gospel creeping into the church is to keep sharing the true gospel. One of the primary reasons that false gospels have so easily crept into the church for the whole history of our church is that the church stopped sharing the gospel. They stopped saying the gospel. And so they become easily deceived by something that sounds like something they heard one time. Church, we need to be verbally sharing the gospel regularly. We need to be finding those places, finding those people, not sitting back. John Piper had a famous sermon several years ago where he said, don't be the couple who grows old and goes and picks up seashells on the beach. Don't waste your life, is what he said. With every minute, with every moment of your life, leverage it for the gospel. There's no graduating from the work of Christ. But a conviction I've felt pretty hard is that maybe rural suburban life can be picking up seashells in its own little way. Isn't it easy for us to camp out in our homes? Isn't it easy for us to sit in our cars? Isn't it easy for us to do our things and get out and go home and stay in our circles? Sometimes we're doing things that might look like discipleship, but what disciples are we making? How much of our life are we wasting on our comforts? We've built really nice hedges around and good vocabulary around to make it seem very important. I'm not elevating cities, but just most of us don't live in a city. I'm, we can all make our seashell moments wherever we are. I'm saying I want us, church, to not waste our life with seashells or with Netflix or with whatever keeps us busy. I want our life to be pinpoint focused on the mission that our Savior had. And we should be repenting regularly when we are not pinpoint focused on that. We should be aiming carefully. We should be thinking intentionally. How can we be the people who are saying the gospel so as to protect against the, the creep of the false gospel? As free people in Christ, as we speak the gospel, there will be resentment. There will be persecution. There will be bullying. But we have to stay on task even through persecution. But we've already struggled with this. Church, we've already struggled with staying on task through persecution. It's already real for us. Do you think our amount of personal evangelism is in any way impacted by how we've internalized the threat of persecution? No one has to persecute us because we've already sanitized our faith for them. We've made the hard-to-swallow parts non-existent. No one has to persecute us because we've sanitized our faith, but do, do you think maybe there's also an allowance 
of sinful entertainment choices, and even things like song selection, because we've already internalized the impact of persecution. We don't want to be the weird ones. <laughs> what, what is that if not perceived persecution? We've internalized what we perceive might be persecution, and we've let the world around us dominate our thought process instead of saying, what does the Scripture say? We say, what will my neighbor say? What will my friend at school say? What will my future wife say? If I'm this weird, I may never find one. <laughs> what does the Scripture say? I worry sometimes that we might not be weird enough in our culture. <laughs> no one has to persecute us because we've already compromised our faith for them. Our churches should look very different than the world because the world hates God. The world hates God and the world needs the gospel. And really the fact that the world hates God is a really great starting place for our human understanding of, of the gospel. That we are sinners. That's a great place to start. Well, if we're sinners, there's someone that we've sinned against. And it's a perfect, holy God who has set this incredibly high standard that we are consistently compromising in our lives. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to keep pointing out, here's a compromise. Come back to Christ. And that's not something we become bitter over or that we start to feel just miserable through. That's something we feel joyful over. Thank you, God, for showing me. Thank you for letting me love you more. We see this perfect God who is worthy and deserving of everything we have. And in his kindness, he has desired fellowship with us, created us, created us for fellowship with him. And yet we sinned, we rebelled, we rejected God. We said, no, God, not you. I don't want you, I want me. I'd rather not rely on you for all the answers. I'd rather make some up myself. And sin entered the world when Adam and Eve did that. And each of us has inherited that sinful trait. And each one of us has made use of our sin in this life. And sin has a consequence because our God is good his goodness and his kindness and his love and his justice, they all demand a consequence. And the consequence is death. We see the results of that every day. Of death in our world. Of sin in our world. We die physically. We die spiritually. We are separated from God. And there's no way out. We can't, we can't earn God's love back. We have ruined it. But that's the good news. That's, 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 where we, that's where we turn to Christ at. That's where Christ came for us. In our helplessness, the helper came. In our helplessness, the one who could do the work of salvation did the work of salvation. And we can be saved in Christ Jesus, 
He says, if you repent and believe, to repent and believe, to say everything else is garbage to me now. I turn from everything that used to, I used to treasure, and I treasure only Jesus. By faith, I believe he saves me. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we gather about. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, why are we here? This is it. That Jesus saved us because he died on the cross. His dying on the cross wasn't just something that happened where he ended up on a a couple of sticks of wood. He died on the cross taking our sin on his shoulders. He was our substitute. The death we deserved, he took on himself. died on the cross to take our sin. They laid him in the grave. On the third day, he rose again. (laughs) He defeated death. He took our sin on his shoulders. And then the consequence for our sin being death, he beat it. He beat the consequence. So now we don't suffer the consequence either. In faith, we, we take his life and death and his resurrection We can be saved. We can have eternity with the God who created us. We can have fellowship. We can be restored. Paul finishes with this. If anyone rejects that gospel, there's a a prosecution within the church. That might be a little harsh of a word, but I was was trying to alliterate. It still works. The prosecution, and that's removing the slave Cast out the slave woman and her son. They won't inherit together with Isaac. Again, in that allegory, the slave is the one who's the false teacher, the false gospel. The one who says, it is by my works I can be saved. It's by my effort that I can be made right. It's by what I do that I can be good enough. If that person claims Christ and at the same time rejects Christ, there's not room for that person in the church of Christ. This is harsh, but God provides the method. Matthew 18, the church should be careful who it allows to be a part to begin with, but we have a narrow entrance and a a narrow exit because Matthew 18 says that we should hold each other accountable to go one-to-one. The goal is not that we just go kicking people out. Nope, sorry, you got something wrong. Kick them out. The goal is that we go seeking repentance. We go seeking restoration with those who have fallen to a false gospel. If they repent, praise God. Restoration. We celebrate. But if someone keeps choosing rejection of God, there's an end to that for those who love God. That's Paul is being very clear here at the, at the end of chapter 4. But just as that time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. It's an allegory. If the church, if the, true, if the believers of the true gospel were Isaac, who is, who is Hagar and Ishmael? It's those with the false gospel. And he says, cast them out. For those who believe in salvation through their own works shall not inherit with those who believe in salvation in Christ alone. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, 
but of the free woman. If we cannot receive correction, if we cannot hear, hey, here is false teaching, then the best thing to do is to be removed. And that is true. That harshness is true because, one, false gospels are dangerous. And two, because the gospel itself, the true gospel, is precious. And the lives for whom the gospel is meant to save are precious. And our Savior who gave us the gospel is precious. Is worthy of our seriousness. So let me challenge you, church. Let me challenge you here with this. Rely on God and reject your own power. That's a challenge from this text today. Rely on God and reject your own power. Settle into your weakness. Ask God to help you enjoy your weakness by him being strong in your weakness. That's where he loves to be strong, is in your weakness. You don't have to do it all. We can rely on God. And if you're not a Christian, the challenge for you is to stop striving for purpose or meaning or salvation in all the wrong places. God has done it for you. He's done everything for your purpose and your meaning and your salvation. And he is calling out to you. He's calling out to you, but he's not calling out as a beggar who needs you. He's calling out as a king who is going to return. And there will be some who are in the wedding party. And there will be some who are out of the wedding party. He is calling for you as one who is coming back. Why wait? Take no more chances. He calls you to surrender. He calls you to give everything in service to him. So repent and believe today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, who probably had no idea that Paul would write about them in his letter to the Galatians, who had no idea that here in Union County, North Carolina, we would be worshiping you through what you've done in them. God, we thank you that most of all, their story points us back to you. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for a Savior who could deliver us from our sins, who could rescue us, God, as often as we, even knowing what you've done for us, still choose to rebel, still choose to reject you over temporary, fleeting things. God, I just keep returning to your kindness to us, your mercy and your compassion. Father, the fact that any of us are here right now It's just a reminder that you aren't done with us. I pray that this church would be bold with the gospel that you've given us. That we'd be bold with our salvation to share it with others. Father, we love you. We thank you that Jesus is coming back soon. (laughs) I pray that we would be ready. I pray that you would prepare us for that. Help us to live with that urgency and diligence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.